This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is some light catch-up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one chosen by myself. We pick our topics from the Making Briefing, which is an email newsletter we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and more analysis of culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to come to some sort of conclusion on the state of culture, media, tech, food, whatever it may be in our modern times. Also, if you like this podcast and you would want to support us, please share your favorite episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. So first Making It Up of the new year, right? Oh, yeah. This past New Year's Eve, I felt more like you. The year turned over. What's that supposed to mean? The year turned over, and I was, oh, this is not that remarkable. Who comes up with arbitrary calendar dates anyway? Well, it's not arbitrary, is it? It revolves around the sun. No, it doesn't. That's a lunar calendar. Oh, revolves around the moon. Man, I'm stupid. The Gregorian one is somewhat arbitrary. Oh. Do you think that our dynamic is decidedly different when we are physically in the same room versus when we do this over Skype call? Yeah, a little bit. I think it's lag though. Oh, so it's an internet problem. Lag and connectivity are probably the two biggest issues behind really clear and concise conversations. I somewhat think that it has to do with body language. So when you say something, you can already feel what my response is going to be like based off of how I'm sitting or what my face looks like. And we don't get that as much when we do a video call. That's true. But I also try to hide it. Just in all of your conversations. Maybe I try to like... You try to hide internally. Try not to slump. I don't know. I think those things... Try to put my chin up. I think those things are imperceptible. Yeah, it's interesting because everyone's like, oh, you have a tell or like every time you do something, this happens right before... Kind of like poker, you know, everyone has like a tell. Right. But what I mean by imperceptible is that you might not know what it is that yeah, you're yeah. emanating. That yeah. conveys that you are displeased or you disagree, but it exists and somehow we feel that. Yeah. What stories did we do this week? So our first story of 2019 was One Way Ticket contributed by Marco Due. One Way Ticket was actually a longer publication that he independently put together from interviews he did of overseas Filipino workers in Hong Kong, more commonly known as domestic helpers. And then we did kind of an edited version of one-way ticket. If you're a tourist and you go to downtown Hong Kong on a Saturday or Sunday, Central Admiralty, Wan Chai, you're most likely going to be surprised unless you've done some reading beforehand, because those are the days when all of these overseas foreign workers, mostly women, congregate in public areas. And it's because it's their day off and they get to not be in their employer's home and just chill and have fun with each other. Yeah. What's really fascinating is that Hong Kong as an economy actually relies a lot on these definitely helpers, right? Because maternity leave is not very long in Hong Kong. 10 weeks. 10 weeks. Ooh, they just extended it to 14. Okay, so Still not very long. Yeah, so like it's super quick. So that means that in between all of that... And most households require double income. Yeah. As in, it's quite necessary for both parents to be working. And that means you know who's taking care of the kids. Yeah, so like 
I think as in terms of GDP and, and the ability for people to go and contribute to the Hong Kong economy, for what reason? I don't know. You know, to buy like a tiny apartment, but like in the grand scheme of things, like it's super critical and they play an important role within that. And I think what we've published is quite an honest look at what life is like for a domestic helper in Hong Kong. Yeah, I would definitely think that, you know, the way that it's gone about, and especially a lot of it's done in their native language too, right? Yeah, so that's really great. Marco Dewey himself is Filipino. He's currently based in Melbourne. And he conducted these interviews in Hong Kong in Tagalog and then also translated them. And we did a English translation. Actually, we met him just randomly on Instagram. Yes, he reached out to us. And said he was coming through. Now we're friends. I mean, there's a lot of people in the extended Macon community. Just today, our friend Takuma from Wagion was in New Zealand. His yeah, wife, we've done stories with both curated of them. Kyoto. And he went to a store wearing a Macon t-shirt. And the guy's like, hey, you know Macon. And they ended up kicking it off. And I was like, he sent me a photo himself. It was really, really cool. It is really cool. Yeah. You know, one thing I also think is interesting. You and I were talking about this earlier. And I kind of brought up this point. From a brand and editorial direction standpoint, one thing I was thinking about is like, how do stories like One Way Mm -hmm. Ticket that might not fit into the general sort of creative culture landscape that Macon operates within, how does a story like that fit? It's something to be considerate about because honestly, I think we talk about this a lot and we're, we're not shy about it. A lot of people sometimes come to Macon, they're unfamiliar with what we are and Mm -hmm. what we do. Yeah. Right. And that could be, how we make money, what type of stories we tell, et cetera. And like, you know, there's elements of it that are really broad. It's like, oh, we're storytellers. But like, how do you drill that down? Right, of course, because there are loads of good stories out there. We don't publish every single one. And it is a good question. How do we individually identify what is a making story? Yeah. Part of me also wants to have a platform for people creative people to have uh, well-curated and impactful opportunity to have their story told. And, you know... One-way ticket fits that bill. Yeah. Because... So maybe I could give you context as to why this particular story made me think. Okay. One-way ticket is not in the traditional creative culture vein of like, hey, this is an illustrator, photographer, designer, right? But it is from someone who does operate in that space because Marco himself is like a... Photographer, designer. So those are things that actually make it relevant and whole because that's how we created this relationship or that's how this relationship happened, right? But I was thinking like from a standpoint of what the story is about, like it doesn't really fit into other things we've done. It's really just an opportunity to tell stories. But I also believe that taking this more artistic or more dynamic approach to storytelling allows people to kind of uncover something. And, you know, this is something that we've been tracking on too. It's like the stories and, and content, content being the unsexy word, but like the things that we want to create, part of it is rooted in practicality. It's like, how do you do this? Right. The other side is like the more psychological, process driven, human, humanistic side. Humanistic. Yeah. Haven't dropped that one in a while. So that was the right opportunity. Yeah. So I think that there's this thing here, but anytime you operate in the intangible world of like psychology and whatnot, it's it's hard for you to wrap your head around because it's not a very definitive thing that kind yeah, of pops in your mind. How does telling the story of Filipino domestic helpers fit in the making narrative? 
But I think that, you know, ultimately, sometimes stories are good stories. You know, we want to be able to have that opportunity. I think that in some ways, it may create confusion if you come to Megan for the first time. That's the first story you see. Right. But at the same time, if there's an emotional impact around that, then I think it might just be like the right thing to do regardless. Well, one way ticket in particular might be a little bit of an outlier. You already mentioned how Marco Due himself is a creative person, like many of our readers, listeners. And then also, I think because we're based in Hong Kong and this team is proud of owning that, we have published before about why Hong Kong. And so that's also one of the reasons this story in particular is striking. Like if it was about overseas Filipino workers in Dubai, I probably would be less likely to pick it up. Yeah, that's fair as well. It's a little bit more, we are a small team, so we get to make sometimes like emotional choices. Yeah. Such as those. Yeah. And I think that the feedback has generally been really good on this story, right? Yeah. I think it just like give people a different pace of something a little bit unexpected. You know, I'm always thinking about what the brand and what the publication and what the media company and everything we do represents because... Well, One Way Ticket is not a selling story. No. Which sounds... Very commercial, but that is ultimately what we're talking about. Yeah. It's not the story that you can use to pitch a big potential partner yeah. to explain what Megan is and entice them to work with you. But it has to be a part of the overall fabric. So my subject is, can luxury brands tap into China's virtual avatar fever? So this topic itself might immediately sort of put this direction in your mind of, hey, this is about virtual avatars. But We've talked about virtual avatars such as Lil Michaela before. Yeah. Yes. And also the fact that China is in the title, you might think, oh, it's about China. But actually, I want to take a slightly different approach to this topic. This is more of the jumping off point. In this Jing Daily article, what they talked about was how virtual influencers are becoming such a big part of the overall landscape and how they're going increasingly heavy into its representation, its creation, and how people utilize this to form part of their identity. So leading the way is Zepetto, and it's one of these big apps that are driving this change. If you're familiar with Bitmojis, which are from the Snapchat world, they're actually not that different. There are small changes that make it a fundamentally different product. Zepedo is owned by Snow Corporation, whose parent company, Naver, also conceived this social media platform called Snow, which is kind of like Snapchat. And they also created or own the popular messaging app. Snow is like Snapchat? That's how I thought described. Snow was like Meitu. Meitu is like a beauty app. I guess like that's where they connected. Well, they know. could all be all of those things, honestly, yeah. at some point. And Keep also the last thing is like they, they also own Line. I think everyone knows Line. Uh, no. I don't think everyone. I think outside of Asia, you might okay, not necessarily know Line. Line is Barely like WhatsApp. Line is like oh, I was just about to say Line is like WhatsApp, but big in Korea. But now that you said big people don't know too. WhatsApp, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Yeah. Line is a messaging app. Yeah. So the premise behind Zepedo is you can take a photo of yourself, and that represents the baseline of your avatar. There's quite a bit of customization you can engage in. But the fact that they utilize an initial snapshot or photo makes the experience a little bit more realistic. It's pretty realistic. Have you done it? I haven't done it. I just saw yours. Mine was tweaked a little bit. Like yours, a pedo. There's a baseline. Does look 
more like you than your Bitmoji. What? My Bitmoji looks a lot like me though. Anyways. Maybe because it's 3D? Yeah. This is the most graphically required segment on this podcast we've ever done. Yes. So with the Zepetto, what you can do is you can bring it into the real world. You can take a photo. You can utilize your Zepetto and put it into various different situations, scenarios. For example, I was doing a side plank on a street in Hong Kong. Like there's one I did of that. It's like basic Photoshop. Yes. Maybe a little bit better than basic. Yeah. So the part that makes it a little bit different from like a Bitmoji is the social component where you can follow people, you can look at their avatars. And I say that kind of dismissively because it's like you're just shopping through people in a way. Like basically if the Zepetto is a representation of them, basically following people based on style and like how they look, right? But Even is though that, it's not that's accurate. no different from Instagram. It's just a digitalized though, version of because yourself. Because you're creating content though. Right? Yeah. On Instagram, I follow someone for the content they create potentially versus the pedal where like it's your persona is how you dress. That's my argument. I actually think that part's kind of weird. The following of avatars? Following of avatars when the avatar itself is the value proposition. It's like we're back in Second Life. Yes. No way. Although Which I never played I have reference. Life. I have also not played it, but it comes up a lot as a reference because it was very early avatar world. Yes. So the reason why this topic itself is interesting to me is that fashion brands have started to look at virtual influencers as a way to engage. And what's to be said is that why virtual influencers and how does relationship currently work? So currently, it's actually pretty basic. So let's say I'm Kim Kardashian. I use my Zepetto and I utilize that 3D avatar and I just place it into things of relevance to the brand. So that's what Gucci did with a KOL, what they call an influencer in Asia. Key opinion leader. And she traveled to an art museum in LA, a Gucci bookstore in New York City, and other places in the Gucci travel guide. Under Quotes placed around traveled. Yeah. So there's that element of it. What I'm curious is several things. But First it looks and pretty foremost, good. I think the campaign looks pretty good. Does it? Uh, I actually haven't looked at it that closely. I saw like a few photos. I'm somewhat convinced. Don't yeah. know what this says about me. Yeah. So I mean, what you found interesting about this is the way that virtual influencers have become an increasingly important part of the influencer ecosystem because of the fact they're so how do I put this? These are not like pure virtual influencers because they're rooted in a real person, right? Especially because it's based off of a photo of you. Whatever you design or however you want yourself to look, right? That part's interesting because it in some ways sterilizes the experience like it's it's one step away from human connectivity in my opinion because you're not connecting with the exact human you're connecting with the likeness of the human well that's why brands like it because it's not messy there's no potential there's less of a potential for the avatar to do something that they disagree with yeah actually you know what i was going to argue against that but it does make sense so what do you think happens when the avatar which has a squeaky clean image comes up against the real person who gets busted, I don't know. That would be really interesting. That's what I think is the thing that still, there's still a fabric or there's still a thread that exists there, right? Right. Like if you were dissenting against the Chinese government and had this squeaky clean Zepetto avatar, I think your Zepetto avatar would still get banned. Yeah. One thing I forgot to mention about this whole experience is that you can also customize the clothing you're wearing and you pay for it with coins. Yeah. So, do you have to pay real money for the coins? No. 
you can earn coins by looking at ads or, you know, doing a variety of things. So my current outfit, I'm wearing a t-shirt with a banana on it, some sort of banana slogan, and these flared black pants. Why? They're free? No, I had to pay, I had to pay coins for these. <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is that at some point in time, what would be interesting is if Zepedo collaborates with Gucci on an exclusive outfit and that outfit is limited. And then soon as we start merging digital identities with physical identities and everything becomes all in the same, there's no reason why this world cannot start to become a little bit more connected. And I think that's the biggest challenge is digital and physical worlds haven't really connected. So what it would look like is I will go to Gucci, I will buy this t-shirt and a I physical will, t-shirt. Or any which way, like I think wherever you transact it, assuming the logistics can be kept relatively clean, like whether I buy the digital asset first or I buy the physical asset, I'll get the other side of it. Got it. You know, let's say you do 10,000 of these, right? Then it, it's a little bit easier to track because you don't have to worry about real time inventory. But then I get it. And soon that relationship is kind of whole, right? I mean, this is not taking into account like authenticity and provenance. Like you could fake this. I mean, you wouldn't have it on the digital side, but you would have it on the physical side. It's just that right. what becomes valuable. Well, what I'm interested in is if we can move to digital exclusives only. And that part's actually really easy, though, I would say. Not the transactional part, not the logistics part, but the cultural cachet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As in, I own these digital ACG Nike shoes that are digital only and exclusive. And that gives me as much value to my personal identity and channeling to other game, people. But that's the gaming world, right? A weapon is... I guess what it requires is for all of us to be in that digital world. And buying world into it. As much. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think it needs to be that. Because like you're kind of putting things in a place where they don't need to be, I would say. But the plus side is that we might be able to produce less material goods. Okay, that part I can subscribe to. I think that's interesting. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I don't know if that's a realistic prediction for the future, but because we were just talking about it the other day, so few people actually wear their shoes until they're not needed. You and I probably own enough shoes to last yes. us for possibly the rest of our life if we actually just wore the shoes until they were dead, non-usable. Yeah. yeah. But we keep buying shoes because of all these other reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So what if somehow... No, that's definitely valid. I, I can subscribe to that. You, sorry, I cut you off earlier when you were trying to explain why you picked your Zepetto outfit. I don't know. I just There's nothing that fit what I actually wear on a regular basis. I was like, let's just be super trolly about it and put on this banana t-shirt and these flared pants. Because I know flared pants are like... I don't know what they are. I was going to say the other thing I'm interested in is that compulsion to create an avatar that reflects you as closely as possible. Yeah, that's actually interesting too. Like why? Because it'll never ever be you. But no. you want... Why do you seek this sort of like direct relationship? Because Nicole, like my wife was like, going through her bitmoji the other day and she's like, oh, it doesn't look like me. And I'm like, why does it matter that much? It's Maybe it's just that it needs to cross a threshold for it to be sufficiently relevant because if it doesn't look like you, then it doesn't have that connection. It's interesting just how bitmoji and Zepetto has gone in that direction or how we as a society have gone in that direction as opposed to making avatars that are 
hypothetical what we want to be or what we wish we were like, but we aren't in real life. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I'm curious, well, I'm only speaking on my own behalf, but when I throw out an avatar, it's usually in some sort of comical situation. Always. Like it's never serious. So I'm trying to picture a serious situation in which you would use an avatar. I mean, do people use emojis to suggest anger beyond like an actual emoji? There's no emoji that's like, oh shit, he dropped that emoji. Like he's really mad. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm, no, I know. I'm trying, you to, don't I'm use trying to think the... if graphic design has crossed to a point where it's actually utilized in a way where it's to suggest emotions beyond like the full gamut of emotions. Maybe the middle finger emoji in no. the right context. I don't know. You think just because of that graphic design element, it becomes I think words are still more powerful than the graphic design element. Like if I type F you. Yeah, that's way more powerful. Like fuck you in all caps is way more powerful than any emoji. That's interesting. Right? Like we haven't crossed into a world where like graphic design has the ability to create that meaning. But if you look back in history, there are certain things, but maybe because there's no universal sort of association with something. Like for example, like let's use like any sort of neo-Nazi symbolism, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That immediately Mm -hmm. creates some sort of feeling. Well, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how the Zepetto universe is sanitary and less interesting because it doesn't have that the possibility of erratic behavior. Yeah. Even though social forums try to control for hate speech and unwanted comments, it is those elements that make it more human. Yeah. If in Zepetto you can't even do that, you can't wear something with Nazi symbolism on it. It's almost like you need that possibility for it to be more real. Yeah. Well, I came across some other articles that showed you know, anti-Islamic sentiment, people would use a speech bubble to voice their opinions. So I don't know. I think that's really interesting to think about. Like at what point will we cross over? More the fact that emojis are never a representation of real, real things. Yeah. Right? Like it can only be positive. Yes. And especially since that imagery is always going to be controlled by like a central body. Let's put it this way. Like, let's say that some combination of emojis was meant to create some sort of meaning. Would that even stick? Like, you had to put the, this, this combination of four emojis means that, and this is the worst thing ever. Like, I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe when emojis can be serious is when it's meant to be a code. Yeah. But it has to be agreed upon. But then that doesn't really create real world validity or like it doesn't it's hard because like you have to be privy to the code itself for it to be relevant so it's always going to be a small or a niche thing i like how we went from digital avatars to the power of speech yeah i didn't see that that coming either that's all i got on my end should we move on let's do it
continuing the theme of tech, my subject comes from a New York Times article called Big Tech May Look Troubled, but it's just getting started. And part of the reason I picked this is I was reading yesterday about the Apple sales forecast. So Tim Cook wrote this letter to investors and released a unexpected revenue warning this past week discussing why its expected revenue for Q4 of 2018 wasn't as high as they said it would. They said they had expected 89 to 93 billion and announced that it actually just came in at 84 billion. And the main reasons are economic weakness in China and fewer people around the world getting new iPhones. So the New York Times article takes a bigger picture view and talks more widely about how even though society and lawmakers enjoy saying big tech has too much power and that tech is making us dumb and argumentative and lazy. In reality, we keep buying into tech and tech continues to expand in ways that some people might find frightening. I guess I find it slightly frightening. In terms of these real ways we talked about before, it's accumulating property, having plans to hire tens of thousands of people, eyeing parts of society like urban design that they can enter into. So some more facts. Google is buying up Bay Area property to build a campus for 20,000 workers. Facebook is moving into a 750,000 square feet SF tower. There's this quote from a tech consultant, Tim Badger, and he says, for all intents and purposes, we're only 35 years into a 75 or 80 year process of moving from analog to digital. The image of Silicon Valley as Nirvana has certainly taken a hit, but the reality is that we, the consumers, are constantly voting for them. So besides it being relevant to the recent Apple news, another reason I found this interesting is considering the personal boundaries that we set when it comes to technology. Yeah, my whole thing is that no one really disagrees with the effect tech has had. So I would say that in general, you probably have to look at the bigger picture and identify different people of different walks of life with different amounts of what I call digital maturity, right? So if you've known what it's like to be online for most of your life or over half your life or had access to the internet, whatever, that is like one subset. You have people that maybe are just getting on today, whatnot. What I find interesting is that depending on digital maturity meets education, there's different opinions that are being created around tech, right? So you and I probably have a neutral to negative perspective of tech yes. and where it's going. If someone just came online yesterday in a developing country, they might think it's the best thing they've ever seen. So right now what we're seeing is like just the pendulum get ripped back. Well, pushed back or just natural, naturally speaking, like gravity will just pull it back to some, some more realistic, sustainable point, right? That's kind of where we're at right now. Do I think most people will get to a point of this sort of maturity where they'll just like recognize, hey, time to put the phone down. Mm. I think so. I think you just hear and see it so much and there's going to be elements of cultural and societal involvement that are going to make people kind of aware of this in a more crystallized way. So everyone knows like, oh, social media is bad for me. But when they start seeing 
more and more people or people they respect or they they look up to doing certain things. They're like, hey, you know what? Maybe I should do that too. I think that's where the narrative is going to change significantly. I know that in one of the last two episodes, we talked about chronological snobbery and what I'm about to say is going to sound like that. But I do genuinely think that the direction of tech is significantly different from anywhere else, any other point that humanity has been in, Mm -hmm. in terms of technological advancements. Yeah. Like there's nothing comparable. Do, Do you feel you have a good relationship with technology? No, I think it's very love-hate because I deactivated my Facebook about three months ago, but it feels so hypocritical because even though I deactivated Facebook, I still use Instagram and WhatsApp, which is the same parent company. So what even is the point is something that goes through my head when it comes to the technological decisions I make and even the decision to spend less time on social media, ultimately is still buying into social media. Yes, I agree in some sort of meta way. And I think about how we also talked recently about Craig Maud's article about the future book. Yeah. And he was saying how great email is because Mm -hmm. it's decentralized and you have direct access to an audience that isn't controlled by other people. But most commonly, we use Gmail. Mm -hmm. which belongs to Google. So I question the amount of power I give to tech, but I also feel unable to change or I feel unwilling to change my habits. Well, they'll change when the incentives change, right? Would you agree that with each passing day, it's more and more difficult to leave the Google ecosystem? Yes. Yeah, right? So I think that that's one part of it. The second part is like, what are the options? Currently, nothing. Well, I mean, this is what everyone's kind of arguing for in terms of like blockchain. It's like, hey, this is truly decentralized and this is like the reverse where like fat protocol with apps, decentralized mm-hmm. apps on top versus like the opposite of what we have now where the apps are kind of the majority of that picture mm-hmm. and the protocol is like this small thing at the bottom. I, I didn't look that closely into it, but... Jordan Peterson, the kind of controversial psychologist, outspoken, I'm, I don't even know how to describe him. Not that it's to be negative, it's just that... He's what, a person. He's a person. <laughs> Anyways, regardless, some of the content he had on YouTube was flagged. So he ended up putting it up on a decentralized video streaming platform. Well, he's forced to take everything off YouTube and he just put it onto BitTube. And that theoretically should continue to exist. And that flies in the face of censorship and whatever. I mean, it obviously opens up another can of worms, but it, this is one way of circumventing it, potentially. Well, it answers the question of having other options. Yeah. Whether people use those options for malicious or good purposes, Yeah, that's subjective. Uh, but the fact that other options exist. But yeah. what I was going to say is, I believe the big tech companies will eventually shift to be other types of companies. I'm not convinced that it will be Facebook, Google, Apple forever. So I think about for personal habits, how can we come up with good tech hygiene that is applicable across the board? Kind of like if you part of that think that you drink too much. Yeah. It's you don't think about, oh, I drink too much Hennessy or I drink too much Smirnoff. It's I'm only yeah. gonna have one drink on Friday nights. I don't know. 
Do you think that our our unhappiness with tech is primarily on the media front? Is there any other part about tech that we are not enamored with? Privacy. Privacy, right? Privacy and media. But media almost... The lack of accountability or transparency as to what our personal information is being used that's for. That's fair. I guess for me, I was trying to think like I'm, I, I've always been cognizant of this is that media as we know it has changed so much in terms of how we consume it, how it's created, etc. That we need some sort of foundational lesson to teach us earlier on in our lives about how to think about media and how to interact with it. So that's one part of it. And I, I, I'm curious how that would change because one thing too is that when social media entered the landscape, it was deemed to be this amazing thing. And in many ways, social media is not inherently bad in terms of what it represents, but only now are we starting to see what effects it has, right? And I think those effects will continue to mount and that will change the landscape. But even myself, I've been thinking about this and I'm like, hey, you know what? I actually spend quite a bit of time on social media. Why do I do it? And I, that's always what drives me to continue using social media beyond my inclination to get off of it. Just so I understand, hey, what is pulling me in? That's interesting. Yeah, like I'm trying to think like, hey, like, am I pulled in because I'm bored? Because it's interesting? Because I find value? And if I'm finding a reason that's not so not so great, like makes me question, it helps me formulate a perspective on why I'm doing it and what are the alternatives. Because we won't leave something unless there's an alternative or we understand the ramifications, right? Exactly. So I, sometimes I force myself to do shit I don't really like or I know is not great for me. To better understand why it is you do something or yeah. what it is about It's like your making nature. yourself like kind of like a guinea pig. I had one more direction I wanted to go in because this article talks about the tens of thousands of new jobs that Amazon, Google, Facebook, et cetera, are planning for. And I was thinking about the kinds of creative jobs that are in those sectors. It's not appealing to me Mm -hmm. personally, but I think that more and more young people are going to be in those. That's where the opportunities are. Mm -hmm. I mean, the opportunities are there under what belief? Because those are the companies making the most jobs. Or they're the ones that pay the most or whatever. Like, I think that's the one thing that I'm curious. Well, you know what? You're right. Well, I think they have jobs at all levels, right? Because you could be, there are jobs for people of different skill sets, all encompassing because these tech companies are so big that they have warehouse and delivery jobs, but they also have creative director, marketing director jobs. So Mm -hmm. I just think many people are going to continue to find themselves in positions considering whether I should be taking these big tech opportunities. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means, really. I have no insight into how that changes the creative landscape. Because is there anything different about being a creative for a corporate like Facebook, Google, Amazon versus in the past where you were a creative at GE or Sony? Well, I mean, it comes down to company culture, right? I think that's the one thing that will for sure be part of the overall package of whether someone decides to stay and or continue. Because you have seen people that are increasingly willing to forego salary for better culture, better, I guess, balance. I can think of two Macon members who previously had 
jobs in big tech and chose to leave them. But they have the luxury of that decision yeah. in a way. I mean, they, they were kind of put through the grinder. Not spit out because, you know, whatever reason they got screwed over. It's just like, hey, they decided to leave. Yeah, I, I guess in many ways, tech is kind of like banking. I mean, we, we know a lot of people. <laughs> tech is the new banking. In a way, right? Like, we know a lot of people or I know a lot of people that are like hitting their early 30s and either that's the sort of fork in the road where you either decide to stay in tech slash banking or you decide to go do something else. I accept that. Yeah. Good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in learning more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.